This week, I get to talk about my first tens game here on the podcast with an awesome JRPG from back in the golden era. Hey everyone, JD here with the Gaming Off the Beaten Path podcast, and welcome once again, as I mentioned. We are going to make our first foray into my tens, at least my first foray here on the podcast. Uh, when I started blogging a couple years ago, one of the kind of, I don't know, I guess goals I set or, you know, missions I wanted to accomplish, I made a list of all my games that I personally consider 10 out of 10 all time, and I was going to play through all of them. I did not anticipate it taking this long. Um, I probably should have with how many of them are RPGs. But this is the first one we are going to discuss here on the blog. Um, and again, I should say, these are my personal 10 out of 10 favorite games of all time. Some of them are obvious ones. They line right up with the general consensus of folks in and around the industry. Some of them are completely out there um, that nobody likes them this much but me. Um, there's about 35 games on the list. Again, a lot of RPGs, but, you know, it kind of crosses all different genres. Today, though, we will be dipping into that RPG well to discuss Lunar 2 Eternal Blue, originally released for the Sega CD, and then ported, reimagined, sort of remade as Lunar 2 Eternal Blue Complete for the PlayStation around 2000. So... When I talk about tens, right, you know, even in the top tier, there's division, there's tiers within the tier, right? Like there's divisions. Um, you know, some, there's a difference between great and greatest. And this game kind of leans more on the greatest side. It is definitively a top 10 video game of all time for me. Possibly even in my top five. I don't think it quite gets there. It didn't the last time I tried to rank all these things. Um, but it, Lunar 2 is one of my all-time favorite games. In one of my all-time favorite genres. You know, after all the years I've been blogging, it's almost, it'll be five years once we finish up 2023. You know, not on wood. Uh, and I've, I've thought that the late 90s, early 2000s were my favorite era in gaming. We'll call it from 96 to about 2003 or 2004. You know, there's an entire post worth of reason as to why, an entire podcast worth of reasons as to why, but I've come to realize that, like, the most important of those reasons, the biggest reason is pretty simple. It's that RPGs were mainstream. Nowadays... Well, yeah, I would consider a grand total of one really RPG franchise to be mainstream, and that's Final Fantasy. Yes, I know Pokemon, also technically an RPG, but Pokemon kind of is its own thing, right? It exists on its own plane, apart from all the games that, you know, I'm about to talk about, and from Lunar, and from some of the other RPGs that I've played. Pokemon is really very much its own. You know, I'm talking about stuff like Persona, Tales, Trails, even Dragon Quest. 
those guys are comparatively mainstream among RPG fans, but they're still relatively obscure when you consider the gaming industry as a whole. That wasn't always the case. It used to be a major deal when these games came out or were announced. Final Fantasy was always a huge deal, but at the time, so was Legend of Dragoon. That was a huge deal when it was announced. Grandia 2 was a huge deal when it was announced. I remember Xenosaga getting a huge spread in EGM or GamePro or one of those magazines, just pages long about, you know, the religious theory included in the game and, you know, you need a theology degree to understand it or whatever. And that's just a couple. I mean, a host of others. It was an event when an RPG was released. You know, as big as it is, when it, you know a new Call of Duty, maybe not quite that big, but you know, a big name franchise comes out now. You know, it was great to see my favorite genre get so much love, and it led to developers and publishers taking more chances with games they otherwise wouldn't have touched. I mentioned this a little bit in the Vanguard Bandits review I did a couple months ago. Occasionally, older games that kind of missed the RPG boom, probably around those same years, were remade, re-released, reimagined on more popular consoles, and Lunar 2 was one of those games. So it was developed by Game Arts, published by Working Designs, remember them? Yeah, I told you they'd be back. They'd already bought, and, bought, and, bought Lunar 2 to the Western market once. And that was on the Sega CD back in 1995. I remember, and I don't even know the the circumstances or remember the circumstances of why. It's the only time I've ever touched a Sega CD before or since. But I had access to one for about a week. And that was the first time I experienced Lunar. I absolutely loved it. I got about halfway through it. My time with it ended. And... This would have been a must-play game, except for one problem. It was on the Sega CD. Now, to play Lunar 2, I would have had to purchase a Genesis, purchase a Sega CD, purchase the game, and that was not going to happen as, you know, an 8-year-old or 9-year-old with, you know, a couple dollars in salary each week. And even if... I got my parents to buy it for me or could ask for it for a present. It wasn't exactly easy to find Sega CD games in my town. Those of you that are listening from, you know, outside, I'm not sure too many non-friends and family are listening to this right now. But when I say I grew up in New Jersey, I don't mean the part of New Jersey that is, you know, by New York and it's a big city and there's people and everything you could possibly imagine and it's urban. I'm from the part of New Jersey that looks more like it belongs in the Midwest, or at least it did when I grew up there. I grew up in the middle of the woods on you know, rolling hills out in the northwest part of the state. The nearest Funko land was a 30-plus minute drive, and even then, they only occasionally would stock Sega CD games. So I was like, you know, stinks, but game's lost to me. What can I do about it? Well, in 2000, I lucked out because Game Arts and Working Designs decided to bring Lunar 2 Eternal Blue Complete to the PlayStation. It had upgraded graphics, updated sound, updated gameplay, and 
this would not have happened at any other point in gaming history to a relatively obscure RPG that was stuck on a out there weird, you know, console that nobody owned. Maybe they would have done it in Japan, but it would have at the absolutely never come to the United States. Uh, so yeah, I, let's talk about a little bit about the version differences before we get too far. Cause they are quite a bit different, not enough that I consider them different games and I would rate them separately, but pretty different. So for the sake of this review, I obviously played the PS one version. The general consensus among fans is that the first game lunar, the silver star story, which was also a Sega CD title that was later reimagined on the PS one by the same companies was changed drastically when it was bought over. Lunar 2 was not changed quite as much. Um, it's largely the same. The translation has been cleaned up, uh, but the overarching plot and personalities of your characters and your party are pretty much intact. Uh, it does throw the occasional working designs e stuff in there. There's like a Bill Clinton joke, but you know it wasn't like it was in some of their other titles where you know it was really front and step center it, it was you had to kind of dig for them and they were at appropriate times um the battles are a bit different and there was a, a, a experience magic experience mechanic that was left on the cutting room floor um but the biggest changes were reserved for the exploration and dungeons uh all encounters in Lunar 2 complete are touch-based and instead of they were random in the Sega CD version and there were no encounters at all on the world map, which was new. Uh, some of the dungeons had been shortened. A handful were changed entirely. The number of cutscenes were reduced, but they were the ones that remained were actually longer and more detailed. So I, I think the actual runtime of cutscenes in the PlayStation version actually exceeds that of the Sega CD version, despite there being fewer. Uh, it's different, but again, I wouldn't consider it entirely different enough to review them. So this review will hold for both the PS1 version, the Sega CD version. There's also a Sega Saturn version that I don't believe ever left Japan, but I've been told it's also largely similar, a little bit superior to the PlayStation version, but I don't know because I've never played it. Um, I will say personally, I think the PS1 version looks better. I think it sounds better, but if you're a real hardcore RPG player looking for some challenge, you got to pick the Sega CD version up. It's way tougher. It's brutal. I think the PS1 version is still pretty tough. The Sega CD version's brutal. It ain't Seventh Saga brutal, but it, it's hard. All right, so now that that's out of the way, why do I love this game so much? Why is it a 10? Why is it one of my favorite games of all time? Well, it starts with the memorable story and characters. Uh, the plot is a little standard JRPG-ish, but it's presented way better than it is in, in most uh, titles in this genre. Um, it goes way deeper and, you know, it's just overall more well done than you would see. The characters, though, are probably my favorite part here. You play as Hiro, H-I-R-O, like the Japanese man's name, men's name, Hiro, who is a young man who lives with his adoptive grandfather, Gwyn, 
and his lifelong companion Ruby, who is a flying pink cat. Yeah, JRPGs are weird. Get over it. Of you know, Ruby is of questionable origin, but as far as we know, she's a flying pink cat. Ruby and Hero are obsessed with exploring ru ruins and searching for treasure. Hero idolizes the legendary Dragon Master Alex. If you played the Silver Star story, you know exactly who that is. He's the main character of the first game, and it tells the story of how he became a Dragon Master. He longs to leave his relatively dull life behind, and after witnessing a strange flashing light at the mysterious nearby Blue Spire, Hero, Gwyn, and Ruby are confronted by Leo. Leo is a member of Althena's Chosen, and he's one of the four heroes of Althena, again a recurring theme from the first game. He is seeking information on a being called the Destroyer that's alleged to have just appeared at the Spire. Doesn't phase the trio at all after they tell Leo what he wants to hear and get rid of him. They set out to explore despite the warnings. Reaching the top of the Spire, they expect to find a hideous beast, a vicious monster, you know, something that's going to attack them. And instead, they are shocked to find a young woman. She introduces herself as Lucia, claims to be from the revered Blue Star, and demands to see the goddess Althena in the holy city of Pentagulia. I think that's how you pronounce that. Sorry, hardcore fans, if that's not correct. Hero is unsure at first, but something about her, he feels compelled to help Lucia and decides to help her in her quest and escort her to the city. But it's not going to be easy. For one, Lucia has been cursed. She has a really strong, almost godlike magical powers, and now they've been suppressed by this curse. They also have to stay one step ahead of Leo, who is convinced that Lucia is this destroyer and wants her gone. So all of this, because it's a JRPG, is going to lead to a pivotal battle against an evil force beyond anything Hero could have possibly imagined. Again, it's got the trappings of the standard JRPG plot, but it always, anytime it hits that hackneyed JRPG point about love and friendship or, you know, whatever... It takes it a step further and goes a little bit deeper in a way that's more organic than most RPGs. You know, it explores themes like love, family, loss, religion, past trauma that most RPGs touch, but they don't really do a good job discussing. Uh, so, for example, as you might have told, discerned from all the talk of holy cities and goddesses, that you know, religion's a part of this game. Um, a lot of times media that criticizes religion tends to either not go far enough and be toothless or overdo it with typical, like, you know, okay, you read Nietzsche, we get it, shut up now, kind of stuff. That's not the case here. This story, you know, it, it makes an interesting commentary um about the topic. I'm not really going to spoil it because it would kind of, you know, give away the plot. But it, it actually go, delves a little deeper, you know, beyond some certain, you know, surface level good versus bad kind of things. And part of the reason the story comes off so strong is because the characters are so strong, as I mentioned before. They've all got really strong personalities. They're got memorable backstories they've got great dialogue they're just interesting they're well designed this might be my favorite jrpg cast of all time and 
I don't think anybody in it is weak. And that actually goes both for gameplay wise, they're all good characters in battle, as well as good characters, you know, character wise. Hero and Lucia will quickly meet with Ronfar. He's a former priest of Athena who's left the order and now spends his days drinking and gambling. They meet Jean, who is a positive and peppy carnival dancer who's you know, says her life's goal is to entertain. She has a great disposition and the you know, when it the trio, you know, the group finds themselves in trouble, they're really shocked to find out she's really good at beating people up. Yet she refuses to say why. Lamina is the junior premiere of the Magic Guild in vain. Again, more references to the first game. It's fallen on hard times, and this young lady has two goals restore the guild and get rich while doing it. Secondary characters are equally strong. You know, Leo's a great antagonist who learns and grows, and he more than redeems himself by the time the credits roll. He's not an antagonist by the end of the game. I'll just leave it at that. He has a sister, Maury, another one of the four heroes who Ronfar was once in love with. She's a powerful mage. She used to be this kind and compassionate woman, but something has changed in her after she was cured from a horrible illness many years ago, and she, she's very much not the same. I could talk about the characters all day, you know, go for character after character. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the final villain, Zophar. He's the god of destruction, the embodiment of all evil. You get the idea, you know. He's got a similar vibe to Sin from Final Fantasy X. Uh, I think he's compelling, even if he's not actually, like, he doesn't actually do a whole lot during the game. Um, it's more his presence, his ominous presence, you know, and his his ominous, you know, coming. It constantly holds over the party's head and is, you know... His impact is felt even when he's not there. Lucia makes sure that the party knows just how powerful and evil and how bad his revival is going to be if they let it happen. The more present villain villain is Galleon. Again, familiar to those that played Silver Star Story because he was the main villain in that game. Uh, he's definitely working against the party, but... Something about him is different than when he was than the way he was in Silver Star Story, where he was the pure evil magic emperor. You know, he, there's something different about him this time. Other villains like the evil wizard Borian, who's a big fat floaty guy, and the mysterious leader of the Dark Dragon Clan, who you know will have a shocking revelation about his identity as you play through. They lead to a very interesting stable of enemies working against the party. It's really difficult to go deep on a lot of their lore and origin without giving away major plot twists. Just note that both the good and evil characters really stand out here. Not to say the gameplay isn't strong, because it is. Uh, Lunar 2's battle system isn't a huge departure from standard turn-based RPGs, but it's well-designed and it does just enough different that it feels fresh. Your characters can move about the battlefield by using specific attacks or defending, and this can be used to avoid specific enemy moves. Characters can attack and or use spells and abilities, some with single target, uh, some target a zone on the battlefield, some will hit all enemies, and of course, you know, there are buffs and stuff too. But enemies also move when they attack, so you've got to be cognizant of which ones you're going to target, with, especially with the zone attacks. You know, the other 
key here with the combat is enemies will telegraph their moves as their sprites will have different animations based on what attack they're about to hit you with. Observant players are eventually going to be able to determine exactly what attack is coming and prepare accordingly. Again, not hugely different, but in practice, it really feels like it. Um, each character can also equip two crests. Uh, they teach them new abilities or provide additional buffs. It allows for the characters to have a certain level of customization and versatility, which is nice. They still feel like themselves, but you can customize them a little bit. Some combinations of crests can create even more powerful attacks. I found it fun to see which of these combos would work and do special things. It leads to some fun and exciting battles, especially against bosses, right? The uh, you know, the bosses also have telegraphed attacks and patterns, but they have a lot more, you know, and they're all big and intimidating and have really well done sprites. Um, I have to also, uh, you know, shout out the final boss fight. Uh, I think it was really good. One of the better ones of all time. Uh, so Lunar 2 doesn't have many flaws, but it's not perfect either. No game is not even the tens tens games. I find a lot of RPGs, even the best ones, have what I call the slog point, where the game starts to go drag a little bit and slog. For me, this usually happens at the end of the game, like the dungeon before the final dungeon, where your party's overpowered, and really only the final boss is going to give you any trouble. But in Lunar 2, the slogging happens early, as it takes a while to get your party set up, especially when you don't have Ronfar, who's your dedicated healer. Things can get a little dicey. The first two hours or so are really slow here, um, and that's kind of a problem. You might have also noticed the amount of times I've referenced the first game in this review, which I, I have not reviewed the first game yet. I will. So Lunar 2 does not directly follow the plot of the first game, but it does take place in the same world a thousand years in the future. And honestly, and here's the problem, I'm not sure whether you should play the first game first, the Silver Star story, or not. On one hand, Lunar 2 is filled with references to the first game, the characters from the first game. You know, Hero idolizes Dragon Master Alex, who, as I mentioned, was the main character of the first game. Galleon was the primary villain of the first game, so his presence has more of an impact if you know who he is. Uh, you know, there are tons of other shared themes and locations. The four heroes in Moribia and Vane and the Magic Guild. You have Nal from the first game, Ramus, the goddess Althena. All played a major role in the first game. You know, Lamina is a direct descendant of Mia and Nash, who are party members from the first game. You know, and with all that, it seems like you should play Silver Star Story first. But doing so is also going to give away a number of plot points, really big plot points of Lunar 2, almost immediately. Anyone who's played the first game will know right away what Ruby's deal is just by looking at her. Um, that's one of the, you know, her hero kind of finding out about her and what she really is where she came from is a real supposed to be a real big plot twist here but if you've played the silver star story you know exactly just by taking one look at her where she came from um uh you know as i mentioned before there's a, a lot of you know talk of the goddess alfina and 
Lucia's connection to her and her importance in the world. And I'm not going to give it away, but the first game, the ending of the first game already explains exactly what happened to the goddess Althena, like why, you know, her situation is what it is in Lunar 2. You already know that. And that's supposed to be like one of like the big major reveals of Eternal Blue. But I'd play the first game first. So that was completely lost on me since I already, you know, and so much of the quest is spent, you know, 25 of the 30 hours of the main game are, you know, are spent building towards that revelation that just, you know, isn't there because I already knew, you know. So despite all that, Lunar 2 offered one of my favorite JRPG universes ever. It had a memorable world, engrossing story, outstanding characters. It has, it's just the right length. It's about 30 hours to beat the game. Then you've got a nice eight to 10 hour epilogue, which I think is really cool and builds off the ending. You get your party back together. You get hidden dungeons. No, you know, I like that better than a new game plus personally. And I wish more games did it like so many RPGs of its time. Lunar two seemed destined for a sequel, but didn't happen that way. The JRPG, JRPG boom wasn't going to last forever as the genre started to peter out as the, you know, sixth generation, especially gave to the seventh. The why, the how of all of it, that's a different discussion. That's probably an entire series of blogs and podcasts for a different day. You know, some series carried on. Final Fantasy and Dragon Quest are essentially too big to fail, right? You know, Persona and Tales are getting there. They kind of, you know, reinvented themselves to target a more specific RPG audience, but target them they do, and they do a great job of it. So many franchises disappeared, you know, and unfortunately, there was never a Lunar 3. And no, the absolutely horrible Lunar Dragon song doesn't count. That's a shame. It was alleged by some folks that were working at working designs that the game lunar three was in development, but this was never confirmed by game arts or anybody else working designs, unfortunately went belly up in 2005 and game arts while still in business doesn't appear to be very active. Like it does very much. So it seems like a true sequel is a long shot. It was kind of hard to tell by my research, but I think it looks like Ubisoft owns the rights to publish the series here in America. And why would they take a risk on a 20 year old JRPG when they could definitively make fistfuls of cash by cranking out Assassin's Creed 11 billion or whatever number it is they're on right now for, you know, half the effort. Why? You know, why, why take the risk? But you know what? You never know. Because maybe JRPGs are ready for another big boom. People lost their minds over Chained Echoes. They're super pumped for Sea of Stars. You know, this Star Ocean 2 remake has been announced. I That came out of left field for me. I was super pumped for that. Because that Star Ocean 2 is another 10s game that we'll discuss at some point here. Suikoden 2 is getting a remaster. Super Mario RPG is another 10s game. And it's getting remade. 
maybe we'll get a new lunar game after all, you know? Not going to hold my breath, but regardless of what happens going forward, Lunar 2 Eternal Blues, an all-time classic. If you even remotely like RPGs, you should play it any way you can. I know it's not that easy to find the, you know, the disc or discs and box and all the fancy stuff it came with are pricey. But find a way to play it any way you can, whether it's on PS1, Sega CD, or Sega Saturn. I know I'll be playing through it again. You know what? Probably again and again. That does it for me this week, though. Thanks again for stopping by. I hope to see you back next week. But until then, happy gaming.